A very special good evening. My guest is the vocalist, the songwriter, and the guitarist for the Power Trio rock band that hails from New Orleans, Louisiana. I've seen this band probably somewhere around 15 times, and that includes some old places like Old Man Rivers in Avondale, Podnas in St. Martinville, and even at the Summit in Houston, Texas. They were inducted into the Long Island and the Louisiana Music Hall of Fame, and are hands down one of my all-time favorite bands. You guys don't go anywhere. You'll not want to miss my chat with the one and only Randy Jackson of Zebra when we return. This is Backstage Pass Radio, the podcast that's designed for the music junkie with a thirst for musical knowledge. Hi, this is Adam Gordon, and I want to thank you all for joining us today. Make sure you like, subscribe, and turn alerts on for this and all upcoming podcasts. And now, here's your host of Backstage Pass Radio, Randy Halsey. Randy Jackson, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing okay, Randy. How are you? I'm doing great. It's a treat to have you on for sure. And thanks so much for taking the time. It's greatly appreciated. No problem. So I have to explain to the listeners that I guess it was probably 1980. Three, I was, let's see, I'm doing the math. I was, a, I guess, a junior in high school, and I was coming back from a camp in Washington, Texas, and I was actually traveling from Houston to Lafayette with a buddy of mine named Scott Cody, and he, at the time, you know, we're, we're in this van, and he has a cassette. And he said, man, you got to check this band out out of Louisiana, and he popped it in, and it was Zebra's debut album of course. So that was kind of my introduction. I, I And I think I'm horrible with dates. So I believe that it was sometime around late 83, 83, when I heard that for the first time. But Zebra was founded back in 75, correct? Right. 1975. Started off in New Orleans, Louisiana, and we started doing some gigs down there. We had, you know, Guy and Felix and I were Zebra, before that, in 1974, we, we had a four-piece band. We had a keyboard player with us, and we called that band Maelstrom. And the keyboard player wanted to strictly do progressive music, and we did do a lot of it. You know, we we did we were doing Pink Floyd and some uh, Yes and, uh, you know, whatever was progressive at the time. And we loved that music, but we, we needed to get gigs, and uh, the kids wanted to dance. Right. And, uh, and so the keyboard player, his name is Tim Thorson. He, uh, he decided he just didn't, he didn't want to do it. So, uh, he wasn't going to play the dance music. He wasn't into it. And, so, uh, so then we, you know, he left the band and then we reformed as a three piece. So define dance music. I don't ever see Zebra doing dance music, but I'm assuming well, covers that, of dance stuff, right? I'm talking yeah. that's disco. Well, it wasn't like right? dance, like, like disco dance, okay. you know, this is. Remember, this is like 1975, so, yes. and disco was out, but we didn't have to do that, but we needed to play stuff people could dance to, and it wasn't, you know, close to the edge. Sure, like, sure. Dancing to that. Sure. So, uh, you know, like uh, Taking Care of Business, you know, uh, BTO, BTO, that was yep. a dance song. Yep. Uh, David Bowie, Supper <clears throat> Jet City, you could dance to that. Yes. You know, so it was those, it was rock songs, but danceable rock songs. Exactly. Uh, and that's what we were adding to the set, yeah. So are you still in contact with Tim today? Where Where's he at today? Yeah, he's he, he lives in Alabama. He's up in Birmingham, and he's a vice president of a bank. 
Well, wow. so I think he, he made the right move. <laughs> there you go. There you go. He has his own types of stress to deal with, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, in, yep. in, the, in the financial industry, you know, I'm in, uh, I do IT sales at a consulting firm here in Houston for a living. So I deal a lot with the financial institution. That's what pays the bills for me. And then, you know, as a solo artist, I, I go out and make a little bit of bread on the side to dump back into new guitars and, you know, that cool. keep, keeps the wheels rolling. We talked about kind of where Zebra came up in 75. Where did the name Zebra come from, and who came up with that name for you guys? Was it a collaborative effort? Well, I would, you know, overall, yeah, it was a collaborative effort because we were kind of pushed into getting a name. What happened was we were still, we were rehearsing. We weren't quite ready to start booking gigs, and I got a call from a friend of mine from high school. I was just out of high school, and, and uh her little sister had booked a band for a formal that her sorority was having. And because uh, a lot of fraternities and sororities in New Orleans in high school, the band had canceled at the last minute and they were frantic to get somebody because they had paid for the hall. Everybody already had their tuxes and the whole nine yards. And they knew that, you know, I had a band and we were practicing. She said, oh, is there any way you could play? You could, we, you know, and we hadn't done a gig yet. And so uh, I went to Felix and Guy and asked them and they said, yeah, we were ready. You know, we were we were close to being having enough songs to do it, and so we had to have a meeting. We didn't want to just go up and tell people where the who did it ran, right. you know. Right. So we uh, we met at a place in uptown New Orleans near the Tulane campus. There's a little bar called the Boot, and uh, we sat down. Everybody brought a list of names with them, and you know, we drank several pitchers of beer, arguing over what the name should be, and. You know, we really couldn't come to a, a conclusion. We sure. didn't come to a decision. But there was a picture of a zebra sitting right up above where we were. And it was a decoupage of a Vogue magazine cover from 1926. And it had a, a woman dressed in 1920s kind of garb, you know, riding a zebra. And, you know, when we were leaving, as we got up from the table, one of us said, why don't we call it zebra, you know? right there and that was it because you were out of beer and something had to stick really quick oh well, we needed a name yeah <laughs> <laughs> well you, you I said mean, who knows if we'd have been on the street you know we might have called it bus <laughs> <laughs> gonna pick a little bit of fun and say you know it was infant stages of you guys and somebody asking you to play a gig you don't you don't even really have a name figured out. I was going to ask you if you were going to play the same four songs 400 times in four sets. Like if, if there was, <laughs> if you were there at that time, or if you actually had enough material lined out to get through a couple of sets. Yeah, we didn't have, we didn't have to repeat any songs. And uh, there were a lot of jams that we could do, you know? So sure. even if I forget what, how the night went, you know, I think it went okay. You know, the gig went fine. We did. I don't, I don't remember repeating anything, but if we did, it would have been in the last set, and we would have. Just, we didn't repeat it. We would have just, you know, do extended solos. Let's say, exactly. You know? Improvised. Yep. So you and Felix are from New Orleans. Is that correct? And I think Guy is a transplanted Californian. Is am I correct there, or am I off base? That's right. Guy. Uh, Guy is from California, and he went to New Orleans on a Mardi Gras. Actually, uh, he had broken up with his girlfriend out west and found out from a friend of his that she had gone to New Orleans. So he he traced her in, <laughs> down in New Orleans, tracked her down. And then once he was there, he loved it, and he just decided to stay. Made so it home. he moved down there. They, 
yeah, they didn't stay together, but he, uh, he decided to just move there and that's what he did. I met him, I met him shortly afterwards. Well, it sounded like better things prevailed for him for sure. What about Felix? How did the relationship, where did that form and where did you know Felix from in the beginning? I think I was a senior in high school at the time and I used to go down I only had a half a year of school as a senior because I had enough credits to get out early. And I remember even during the first half of the year, I used to go down a couple of miles from my house to this little nightclub called the library and play foosball. I was a big foosball player. There was a guy at the, uh, that, that was a bartender at the uh, library who I met. His name was Eldridge and Eldridge and Felix were roommates at the time, and they were looking for a guitar player, a lead guitar player for a band, for their band. They had written the song, the two of them, and uh, Felix and Eldridge shared the lead singing responsibilities, and they were looking for a guitar player. So I went, met, I met Felix at his house the first time I met him. Okay. Um, and he lived, you know, like in mid, mid-city New Orleans, around <clears> there. And I met him, we sat down, we talked a little bit, and then uh, we had a uh, couple of rehearsals. We had a, a bass player named Tony Kelsick, and uh, our drummer was Rusty Hauser. Okay. And the band was called Shepherd's Bush. And we, we performed all original stuff. It was all Felix's material. And uh, that was back in 1973. Had to be 1973. Might have even been 72. You know, I can't remember exactly. Right. But, uh, that was well, around the time it was. Well, if you're like me, I don't remember what I had for lunch yesterday, let alone what I was doing back in 1972, even though my long-term memory is a little better than my my short-term memory. But you, so we, we spoke of uh, Guy Gelso, who, of course, is the drummer for Zebra, and mm-hmm. uh, he will be on my show on the 21st, so I'm looking forward to that. Stay tuned for his interview coming up. Now, you guys were together six, seven years when Atlantic Records came calling, I believe. How did the mm-hmm. discovery with Atlantic happen? Was this by way of demos? Did they see, did, was there an A&R guy that you were found in a club playing? I mean, how, how did that discovery take place? Well, we had come to New York in 1977, and... We were managed by uh, a couple of different managers along the way. And uh, one of our managers put us in the studio to make some demos. And he had a connection at Atlantic. So we made the demos back in 77. He took them to Atlantic and Atlantic turned him down. They flat out didn't want to have anything to do with it. And he was very well off, owned a lot of nightclubs all over Long Island. And he got really busy. You know, he didn't really have time for the band after that. And, uh, you know, he always took care of us and stuff. But uh, we were doing well. And But we our goal was to get a record deal. So we left his management and we went out to California for a while and hooked up with another guy who was managing us for about six months. Who he His, his name is Jim Record. He was also managing Christine McVie at the time. And he took the demo. We made some more demos out there with him and he tried to shop and didn't have any luck either and when we decided to leave and we left California came back to Long Island to do some gigs and that was when Bob Buckman who was the program director at a radio station in Long Island the radio station is uh, WBAB and he had been playing 
the zebra music in regular rotation on WBAB. People were asking for it, and he had copies of all the demos. And, you know, it was really, uh, you know, very well requested at the station because people couldn't buy it. Now, these, these, the are still, to, these are still demos, right? These aren't these yeah. aren't the stuff that we heard come from Atlantic, right? So we're no, still, no. still demo days. Okay. These are demos, yeah. And he had five demos that he was playing in regular rotation. And at a certain point, he got to visit a young guy named Jason Flom, who was just starting out in the music business. And he was with Atlantic Records. And he came in, I think, to try to get one of Atlantic's new artists played on WBAB. And he was having a meeting with Bob Buckman, the program director. And during the meeting, Bob Buckman told him, you know, you really should, you guys should really check out this band Zebra, you know? He says uh, they got, you know, they're from here, they're a local band here on Long Island, and they've got the top five requests here at the station. And uh, Jason says, uh, oh, that's great. You mean like they're, they're, they got the top five requests for local bands? He says, no, no, they got the top five requests, period. And he shows him, he says, here's In Through the Outdoor, Led Zeppelin, you know, the song All of My Love or whatever. Here's Back in Black, you know, at number seven. And all of these top five songs are all zebra. <laughs> and he's going, wait a minute. Like, he's something's like, wrong here, right? <laughs> yeah, there's something not quite right here. And uh, But that's how big we were locally, you know, in Long Island. I mean, we had really gotten a huge following. So Jason went back to Atlantic with this information and a copy of the demo tape. Atlantic had a new president at that point, Doug Morris. And uh, Doug heard the tape or heard the story from Jason. So he figured he would, you know, listen to the tape on the way home. Jason was just starting out at the at the label, uh, and to get the president's ear was a lot, but Tough, Jason yeah. Jason had the connections to do that, you know. Sure. Uh, his father was a big wig at Warner's, so that's how he'd gotten the, the introduction job to begin with. At any rate, Doug Morris is on the way home. The story is told to me anyway, and he's being driven home. He's got a driver and car, and He's in the back seat and he takes the cassette tape and he puts it in the, you know, the radio and uh, turns it on. And it's the first song on the, on the tape is who's behind the door with a long intro, you know, the long acoustic intro. Well, he doesn't even let it get to the vocal evidently because it's just, you know, it's forever, he wants right? to get to the hook. Yeah, yeah he sure. wants to get to the hook. You know, where's the hook? Where's the hook? (laughs) So he ejects the tape and, the radio station is WBAB in the car and they're playing the song. They're playing who's by the door. Wow. <laughs> yeah. What are the odds Lucky of that? you. Yeah. Yeah. And sure. evidently right around the same point, he hadn't even heard it, you know, he just, wow. what timing. And so, uh, now he puts the tape back in, ejects the tape. He realizes he's listening to this and this is on the air. And so he listens to it on the radio as opposed to listening to it on the tape. And at the end of the song, uh, the DJ says, you know, that's Zebra, number one requested song here at WBAB for the last two months, who's behind the door? And so we got a call the next day, come in, uh, you know, Atlantic wants to sign you. And that was it. Wow. That's a cool story about the the, the tape popping out and you just happen to be on the radio. That yeah. You don't get much more <laughs> lucky than that, I don't think. No. Do you, well, you might have mentioned it, but what took you to New York? 
to begin with was I think there was a big scene, a music scene in New York. Is that what originally took you guys out there? No, I mean originally we just needed we knew we needed to leave New Orleans. Okay. I mean we we were doing about as much in the clubs as we could in New Orleans. Kind of tapped out, we didn't right? Think, yeah, we just didn't think there was one way to go from there, and that was kind of down. We needed to leave the area, you know, and at least give it a break, and then come back. And we needed to go where the record companies were, and so it was either New York or Los Angeles. And we happened to know some people in New York. We also met a band in New Orleans that was touring at the time that was from Long Island, and we played on the, the same bill with them in New Orleans at the first Earth Day. It was an outdoor show we played. And we were talking to them, and they had you know, been on the New York circuit for years and years and years you know, before they got their start with their label and everything. And they told us, they said, you know, we've been all around the country and the best local scene for rock bands right now is in the tri-state area. And um, they said, it's unbelievable. You can play like five, six nights a week up there, you know, with no problem. So that was another thing, you know, besides us having a connection here that kind of said, okay, let's make it New York. So yeah, that's what we did. That makes sense. Now, do you remember the, the demos that were being played on the radio? The songs that were Um, the demos? Yeah, uh, there was Who's Behind the Door, there was Take Your Fingers From My Hair, One More Chance, and Wait Until the Summer's Gone, and the last one's going to elude me. I think might have been uh, When You Get There, might have been a version of that. So basically everything but Wait till Wait Until the Summer's Gone showed up on the debut album, right? And Wait Until the Summer's yes. Gone didn't come around till. No telling lies, right? Yeah, right. Okay. Now, and we hadn't written uh, "Tell Me What You Want" at that point. Okay. Now, you guys—it's my understanding—you had the fastest-selling debut album in Atlantic Records history, selling I think seventy-five thousand copies in the first week. Is that correct? Yep. A lot of people take that and say it's the fastest-selling debut album or fastest-selling album, but it wasn't. It was the fastest selling debut album. And, and what they meant by that, none, none of the three of us had ever been on a record before. So there was no track record for any of the three of us. So if you take a band like, let's say Led Zeppelin, you know, well, you know, Jimmy Page had been in the Yardbirds. There was a track record there, you know. So the way they justified that was that, yeah, these none of these three guys had ever been on a record before. So that that's what it was. And and it was the fastest selling debut album by any artist, you know, in their history. And I think I had read that it exceeded Led Zeppelin's debut album with Atlantic. Is is that a fair I, you know, statement I don't or know you don't that, know? I never I never heard that. I don't know if it did or it didn't. It might have. Maybe Led Zeppelin needed to get airplay before the first record took off, you know, but I never checked into that. But then again, like I said, you know, if they were in a band before, even Farner doesn't count, you know, because Mick Jones had been in so many bands. Sure, you know, sure. Um, that recorded. Now, that effort was released in 83. Is that timeline basically yes. correct, the debut? And mm-hmm. then, so that's probably one of the greatest albums 
for me as a an intaker of music that's probably one of my all-time favorite records uh kudos to you you guys the material was super and now it's also my understanding that the album stayed on the billboard charts for over eight months and it peaked somewhere around 29 am i right on there or or do you really yeah i don't know about i think uh cash box had it at 29 i don't know what the billboard thing was it was always somewhere up in that range, you know? I don't know exactly where Billboard was, though. Gotcha. So to any of the listeners out there that haven't heard the debut album, please do yourself a favor and, you know, look these guys up and uh, take a listen to that. Who were your musical influences growing up from a, not an individual perspective, but from a, a band perspective? Who inspired you to be a musician to begin with? Well, I saw the Beatles in 1964. And uh, my parents took my brother and I to uh, see the Beatles. And um, This is not, you didn't see the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. You went to see the Beatles, right? Like right. in person. We saw the Beatles live. Okay, yeah. all right. Because I had and somebody so, on my show that said, uh, the Beatles, they were my inspiration when I saw them for the first time. And it kind of sounded like they were, at the Beatles show, but it was, I think it was the Ed Sullivan thing that they saw. Uh, yeah, it was live. I mean, I'd seen the Ed Sullivan show and everything, and that was uh, very cool. But here, you know, was the proof. I mean, you, yes. know, you know, you're, you, you, and I'm a little kid, you know, so who knows? You know, you, you switch from Huckleberry Hound to the Beatles, you know, and who knows what's real <laughs> what a, and what's not real, you what know? A transition. But, yeah. yeah, but watching, you know, that stadium go wild and uh, you know the girls just breaking through lines of cops crying fighting with their parents yeah it was nuts you know it was (laughs) really really nuts and yeah it looked cool so i you know i think that was what just always stuck in my mind in the back of my mind said this looks like a cool job yeah this is like something there's and i was into sport sports a lot too you know when i was younger and loved playing sports and and everything but the music was always you know always part of it What's the sport of choice for you? I love football. I wrestled in high school, soccer, you know, played some soccer. But I was, I found out in high school that I couldn't do contact sports anymore. I I had shooting some basketball in my driveway and I did a jump shot and I hit my back against a little ledge by the window. And it, you know, it hurt a little bit. It, It wasn't like that injured me to the point I couldn't play sports anymore but we you know but it was bothering me for a couple of weeks and so uh my mom said you know you should really go get that x-ray so we did we went and got an x-ray well the x-ray showed that there was no damage from what had happened with the basketball thing but that i had a uh, congenital defect something i was born with oh okay uh called spondylolisthesis and I i was missing some locks locks on two of my uh, vertebrae connecting the L4 and the L5 for all you doctors out there. And, uh, and so it was just the, the, the vertebrae are just slipping, you know, around. And we went to three different, you know, experts to see what could be done. One guy said, Oh, you know, we can fuse, fuse them together. Uh, And this is back in the sixties too, you know, right. Let's fuse them together. Somebody else said, uh, Oh, don't worry about it at all. Uh, you know, go ahead and do what you got to do, do the sports and everything. And, 
And the third guy said, I wouldn't get it fused because there's a good chance you'll be, you could have permanent damage from the fusion. Sure. They're not really too good, especially back then. And then uh, he said, you know, but you've got to quit the contact sports because that's what's going to do it. Yeah. If you get popped the wrong way or get hit wrong sideways, you know, you could end up paralyzed. Yeah. So um, that's the route we took. You know, do nothing and just play it safe. And yeah. So well, that's when I, music kind of took over. Yeah, that's certainly less contact and music unless you uh, maybe pull a Steven Tyler and fall off the stage during a show. Then that could be yeah. somewhat damaging. We, but I think, we, if I'm not mistaken, and, and I could be wrong, I think that's what Mick Mars, the guitarist for Motley Crue, has as well. I really? didn't know if you knew that or not, but um, no, I didn't. Uh, certainly the listeners out there can fact check me on that. But, you know, I, I followed the crew for, you know, like everybody did in the 80s. And, you know, he just, you know, over the years, he's just gotten really hunched over from from that disease. I'm And I'm 99.5% sure that that's what he has. So, I mean, I guess okay. that's living proof that it can be. It can be debilitating for sure if it gets if it gets out of hand. Sure. How about how about guitar influences? You know, we talked about the Beatles were it for you from a band perspective. What about uh, one or two or what? You know, maybe the main guitar player that made you move or gravitate towards the guitar and not the, you know, the recorder or the the blues harp or or what another instrument. Who led right. you to the guitar? Well, I mean, the Beatles led me to the guitar, but as far as playing, you know, the playing style, you know, I'd have to say uh, it's got to be more Almond Brothers, like okay. Dickie Betts, Dwayne Almond, Muscle Shoals, those stuff, were, right. yep, yep, Jimmy Page, Led Zeppelin, of course, you know, a little later on. <clears throat> I loved Hendrix. I learned yep. a lot from Hendrix, and um, Grand Funk, yeah, Mark Farner, yeah, yeah, Mark Farner. That was good stuff. Mark would play tasty stuff, but it wasn't too hard to play. You know, it wasn't like, you know, trying to learn heartbreaker or something like that. You right. know, he, you know, he kept the stuff simple and tasty and you know, you could learn it. So I did, I learned a lot of, a lot of stuff on the guitar from uh, listening to Mark. Yeah. I had watched a documentary the other day and it was about muscle shoals and I didn't know much mm -hmm. about it. And there was a, a line in, Sweet Home Alabama that says Muscle Shoals has got the Swampers, right? Uh huh. Do right. you do you have any idea what the Swampers are? Because I didn't know before I watched this, but I was curious if a music guy like you knows. Uh, the only I'm gonna guess I I know they had a <clears throat> uh, maybe a horn section or something like that, but I don't know if that's what the Swampers were, but. That's, Who knows? They must must have been a group of musicians. They right? were the, they were the studio musicians there in Muscle Shoals, yeah. So okay, I, I had always heard that Muscle Shoals has got the Swampers, and I'm like, what in the what the hell is a Swamper, right? Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and a ooh 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 at the end. Right. So I learned what a Swamper is. Anyway, uh, for cool. the listeners out there that needed a, a a bit of music trivia, so what kind of stuff are you listening to now? Is there anything inside or outside the rock genre that, that Randy Jackson finds appealing for, for me? You know, I was always a rock guy, you know, Zebra, Led Zeppelin, inspired by all the, the great 70s and 80s bands, 60s bands. And then I started getting into this Americana genre. So I didn't know if there's mm -hmm. anything that 
is appealing to you or did you just not listen to you just write and play or kind of talk us through that a little bit? Well, I mean, lately I've been just playing and playing and playing, especially since the uh, COVID came around. Every day, pretty much every day, I do a, a show on <clears throat> Facebook, you know, with just me and the acoustic guitar. And in the process, I've been learning some songs, uh, a lot of cover songs that I've never did before. Right. And by some bands that, uh, you know, that I always liked, but I never learned any of their stuff. But it's all early 70s, early 60s, you know, because I really think that your greatest love is going to be what you grew up with in high school. Absolutely. You know? 100%. Yeah. Yep. And it really goes for uh, anybody, any age, you yep. know, that's, you know, now you can understand why your parents couldn't stand it when you put the Beatles on and, <laughs> and they want to hear Sinatra, you know. They're Although like, you'll, you'll I, grow out of that. You'll grow out of that hippie head banging right. stuff that you're listening to. Uh, I heard it growing up because right. I had the long hair and, and did all of that. And mom and dad were always supportive of, of my music, of course. But it was always, you're, you're going to cut that hair one day and you're going to outgrow all this stuff that you're listening to. I'm like, all right, well, I guess when that day comes, we'll we'll outgrow it at that point in time. Yeah. And I still hadn't, I mean, at 55 years old, I still haven't outgrown it. So. You know, if I had to pick uh, somebody, and it's not really recent, but it's recent, more recent than, than what I'm talking about, not back in the 70s. Uh, you know, I like Bruno Mars. I like some of his material, good writing and uh, a great performance. You, you're right about that. And it's probably not the genre of music that I gravitate towards probably much like you but you have to give props where props are due i mean that guy is he's like prince i mean the guy can play everything and sing everything and, and, I mean, got, I, and how do you and talk about great material for sure for sure yeah. and people love him and he's selling records i mean I don't, so you can't dog him too hard nope so let's talk a little about zebra discography in 83, of course, you guys released the self-titled uh, album called Zebra, of course. This record went gold, correct? And mm-hmm. for for the listeners out there that don't understand what a gold status is, can you help them to understand what does that mean? If your record goes gold, what does that mean in record sales? It meant you, you sold 500,000 copies, a half a million copies. And, uh, and if you sold a million, you were platinum. Okay. Double platinum is two million. Okay, and so that was the the cornerstone record for Zebra. Um, mm-hmm. This is such an influential album for Zebra, and I mean every song is awesome on there. And right off the top of my head, there are three albums that come to mind for me that are front to back solid albums, like where like every song is great to me. One of them is. Def Leppard's Hysteria, great record. The yep. second one, who I'm sure you're, you've are you had to have run into these guys somewhere, being a, a Cajun, is the So Fired Up record from LaRue. LaRue, yeah. And the third one, of course, is the debut record from Zebra. Um, th- those, are, those are the three there. I don't know, did you know any of the guys with LaRue? Um, I think when I was really into them, I think Fergie was still the singer- at the time, of course, that's when I was going to USL and Lafayette, so they were really big then. I didn't meet anybody in Larue until you know after the Zebra records had come out, and you know now we're we're great friends. We've done tons of gigs with them, you know. Okay, they're awesome musicians. Some Ab- of the best, absolutely. And I think Fergie 
play and, and I don't remember the order, but I think he was singing with Toto for a while, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Where was the debut record recorded? Was that in New York? A lot of it was recorded at uh, the record plant in New York. Some of it was recorded at Atlantic Studios in New York. Uh, we, we also recorded uh, some of it at Studio in the Country down in uh, Bogalusa, okay. outside of Bogalusa. Yeah. yeah. So we brought Jack Douglas, our producer, down to – he stayed with me in Slidell. My wife and I had a, had a house in Slidell, and, uh, and we would commute from there to uh, Studio in the Country. So. Gotcha. We did, I think we also did a little work out on Long Island – at, um, I'm going to forget the name. I can't remember. What bands were you guys on tour with when you were supporting the debut release? Uh, we toured with Loverboy for a while. We also did uh, a lot of shows with Cheap Trick. Okay. Did a whole West Coast run with Cheap Trick. And then we did sporadic gigs with different bands. We, we opened up for uh, ZZ Top a couple of times. I don't know. I, I, we opened up for Aerosmith, but we didn't. I, th- I don't think the record was out at that point. Okay. That was on Long Island, but uh, oh, we played um, played in New Orleans at a uh, at a fe- outdoor festival where it was uh, Journey and uh, Foghat, Brian Adams, and Zebra. Sounds like you were in good company there for sure. Yeah, it was a great show. So what I'd like to do is play the staple cut off of the debut record. We'll take a listen to that, and then we'll. We'll come back and chat a little bit about the song. And here's a clip of Who's Behind the Door. Would you say that that's probably the most popular song that Zebra's ever written, or would you say that's not a fair statement? You know, it's hard to tell. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people love Tell Me What You Want, and then uh, Take Your Fingers From My Hair, they ask for that too. You know, that's a real popular one. Absolutely. But um, for, for me, that's my <clears throat> that's the one that I that I like. I'm, I'm so glad that that song uh you know got the airplay it did and got the exposure for sure now was that song a song that was developed over time or was that one of those 10 minute quick write songs that just comes to you you put it down and it and it just happens what what kind of song was that well there was a whole lot of parts that i had come up with uh using this open g tuning and i had just a, a lot of different parts 
And I didn't have really have a theme for the song until I started trying to put the parts together. And then it, uh, the lyrics kind of wrote themselves when I realized what I was writing about, you know, you know, it, it, so it, it took a while. It was a couple of years of, uh, of going through different, you know, verses, choruses and whatnot and, and melodies. Tell me what you want. On the other hand, was like the ten-minute song that wow. you refer to. You know, it yeah. came up one morning and it was just there. You know, yep. uh, except for the arrangement, it was all written really quick. Yeah, and you know, I've watched but, yeah, a lot of these these episodes with live from Daryl's house. You know, Daryl Hall brings musicians into his home, and he was saying that songs like "Rich Girl." were written in like 10 minutes and it's like to me Uh that's just mind-blowing to me that you know you have a song that is still catching airplay you know how many years 30 30 years later and it's still as popular today as it was back then that's yeah that's really amazing now in the song who's behind the door there's quite a few references to we like we we like we sailed Mm -hmm. away now we know um, how can we find out more who owns the keyless door? Who is the we reference in the song? It's, it's really kind of the whole world, you know, Okay, humanity, you know? I was looking also, I think at one time, the debut album, maybe I did, maybe I didn't see it on like iTunes and Spotify, but it's not there now. Is there, is there a reason that it's not there now that? Yeah, there's a reason, uh, we're having to negotiate with uh, what's the name of the label? A- Atlantic put all their stuff to uh, this this label, and now <laughs> I don't know who we're negotiating with. It's before this is funny. Ah, I can't even remember, but it's in, un- unimportant. And we, you know, we put an injunction for them to stop selling it until we negotiated okay. uh, something different. And that's what's going on right now. And then when uh, when we get that settled, it'll be back out again. Okay. And I didn't mean to like uh, pick on a, a sore subject, but I was really asking more for to make sure that I wasn't going crazy because I said to myself when I started preparing, you know, for my you know my outline and the clips that I would play, I could have sworn at some point in time that was out there and. Yeah. So, so I started second guessing myself, like, Randy, are you, are you getting, are you getting old and senile and you can't remember what you're, what you see anymore? So I, anyway, yeah, it, it, so I'm glad you, you clarified that for me. I think the third, the third album and the live album should still be out there. It now. is. It is. Yeah. Uh, so. the, the third. Yes, that's right. Yes, you are correct. I was trying to remember in September ish, 1984, you guys released no Telling Lies, which was the sophomore effort, correct? Mm-hmm. How hard is it to follow a gold debut? Like what's, you know, if you're not a music, for the people that are listening, some are going to be musicians, some are not musicians, some just love the music they listen to. Because I think there's a, a facade to music that it's easy. Man, these guys just go out and they play songs every night. And man, that, that's the greatest job ever. But they don't realize that music is a business. And with yep. business, there's stress because you you have to commit to do certain things for the people to make money, right? So yeah. I didn't know. Share a little bit about you know what that the stress level is trying to follow up to a to a gold record. Well, I mean, I think for for me anyway, uh, the biggest stress was we had eight years 
to pick the best songs for the first record. And, you know, we were out on the road promoting the, the record. And what I should have been doing while we were out on the road was writing more for the second record. And I didn't do it. I just was out on the road. I wasn't even thinking about that, sure, you know, sure. and nobody was bringing it up to me, you know. Uh, I didn't have anybody cracking a whip, and uh, <laughs> you were just we living the lot, dream. <laughs> we had, yeah, we had we had a lot of material that was left over, you know, from the uh, from, from the first record. But it's still to me. I mean, I wish I would have done what I did after the second record, which was just write and write and write. That's all I did, you know, while we were on the road with the second record, and I wrote songs that ended up being on the third record. So. As an album goes, I, I'm happier with the third album than I am with the second album. The second album, it's it's too unalbumish for me, you okay, know. Yeah. It, you know, and and there were some things on there that I, you know, didn't need to go on there. You know, okay. we could we should should have had some better material, but you know, it's uh, it's got some it's got its points. You know, Lullaby I, was one of the songs that I wrote during you know between the first and the second record, and I. I think that's a, a really good song and special. Absolutely. Uh, now that, that one's but a, you got to write. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta, that, that, to, to all the musicians out there, don't stop writing. Yeah. You know? Well, and that was a great segue into what I was going to ask you next. And I was going to, I was going to ask, is it safe to assume that you already had all of the material for no telling lies before you re uh, you released the the debut album or did you write the entire effort in one year because it seems like you know you released the debut in 83 you turned around and let the sophomore effort go in 84 and that's i mean if you're touring in a one-year window that's you got to be on your a game to come up with you know songs and they're cohesive and that kind of thing so i'm going to assume that a lot of that material was written pre yeah, Debut, and it, right? it may may not have been organized. It may not have been arranged at the time, but the 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 basic meat of each song was already there. Right. Uh, some of the songs we had been playing, like Bears and Waiting at the Summer's Gone, and uh, then there were other ones like But No More that I had, you know, a big section for, and then Guy's uh, wife Angie actually, Angie at the time, uh, she had come up with a great middle section for But No More, and. Uh, so we put those together and they work and uh, it's kind of a little putting the puzzles together, you know? Sure. Um, and it's, uh, but then getting back to it, you know, I wish that I would have written, been writing more, you know, it's just been a, a better thing. So I can't stress that enough to uh, whoever's writing, but you, you, you think a year is, is, is an is eternity. A long time. It's not. <laughs> well, it's not. And, but think about the Beatles putting sometimes three albums out in one year. I mean, that's crazy. Well, and there's to do that year after year. I mean, yeah. that's just nuts. Well, you know, and there's, I, I, there's the Beatles and then there's everybody else. Right. I think yeah, so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, and, and certainly, yeah, they were prolific like that. Just like, Elvis, it seemed like he had 178,000 albums out. And it's like, where do you, how does your brain even think of this much stuff? I get writer's block thinking of one or two songs well, to write, and you've written 700 albums. And I, where does all this come from, right? Well, you know, Elvis really wasn't writing his stuff. It was written for him, sure. you know? Uh-huh. So, you know, that's the amazing part. I mean, just to record all the stuff that Elvis 
did, that's a lot of work. I mean, just recording <clears throat> album after album after album, you know, learning the songs and stuff, that's a lot of work. But to write it I know. and record it, I mean. That's amazing. Gee whiz. Well, it was yeah, kind of neat. Crazy. I was, uh, I played a show in Nashville in October of last year. And I went to Studio B where a lot of his stuff was recorded. And it was quite eerie sitting in that studio and knowing what kind of music came out of that, that place. It's, it was a really magical kind of tour to sit in there and just kind of, you know, they turn the lights out. Yeah, absolutely. And some of the greats like the Everly brothers and of course Elvis had written there and really phenomenal. It was a, it was a cool thing to see while I was there. Now, what bands were you on tour with when you were supporting No Telling Lies? Um, we did a tour with Sammy Hager, um, West Coast tour. And then on the East, East Coast, we were with uh, REO Speedwagon and Survivor. And we toured like, you know, all over the South and the East with them. Would you? That was Sammy's last tour before he joined Van Halen. Okay. Now, I also read something recently that the show that you did at Soldier Field with Sammy Hagar was probably one of the biggest attended shows that you guys did. Did I read that right? Or... I think it probably was. I mean, uh, I think there were 50,000 people there. Yeah. That's a pretty and, good crowd. Uh, big crowd, yeah. <laughs> I, I know we had a little over 40,000 with the Journey show in New Orleans. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of people. For sure. And then, so I'm going to take the listeners to a clip of a song that was off the uh, the sophomore effort. This is a track called Bears. We'll take a, a listen to it, and then I'll come back, and Randy and I will chat a little bit about that song. One of my favorite songs right there. Great song. Would you say that the song is making a statement about the opposition to hunting, or is it more of a song that touches on animal abuse, or is it none of the above? It has to do really about hunting, you know. I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of hunting. You know, my, my grandfather had a farm in, uh, right outside of Dallas in a little town called Point. He raised cattle. You know, he had uh, ponds on the farm, and we used to fish. And uh, 
you know, he would go out and hunt a little bit, you know, hunt pheasants, you know, birds and stuff like that, you know, but, uh, you know, as I grew up, I just, you know, I, I just didn't get it. You know, it just aimed a little foreign to, you know, in this thing, this animal's life. Yeah. Uh, just cause you were, you were having fun, you yeah. know, you were going out, you know, and making the excuse that it was food just never, that's why I became kind of why I'm a vegetarian, you know, yeah. the last 30 years. So. Well, the, the Randys definitely agree on that. I'm by no means a, an, a, uh, an activist or anything like that. I'm not an extremist, yeah. but I've never understood. I mean, you know, my dad was on deer hunting leases and granted, I know sometimes the herds have to be thinned. And of course people will make the argument that, well, you, you eat meat that has to be killed, but yeah, I get, you know, you can make all kinds of arguments, but I even going as a young boy, going to central Texas to, to the hunting lease. I never, I shot cans and stuff with my gun. Like I'd never wanted to go kill birds and squirrels and things. Yeah. I just, it's not what I do. It's not what I care anything about. Would you say that bears might be one of your favorite songs that you've written? And I know, I know everybody loves all the songs. They, they, they're all a labor of love for sure. Right. And I'm not trying to single a song out, but does bears fall in the upper 10% of the songs that you've written from a favorite perspective or is it in the middle somewhere or down uh, low? What, think, what would you say? I think, you know, as far as the message goes, it's definitely, you know, in the top for me in the top. Yeah. yeah. And you know, the song is good, uh, you know, it's musically, but, uh, I don't know that it's one of my favorites all around, you know, but it's, but I think as the message brings it up, you know, sure. One of my top, top ones. Yeah. yeah. Now, the third effort from Zebra was released in 86, and it's titled 3.5, correct? Right. Can you explain the title of the album to the listeners? You know, you had the debut, that's album one, No Telling Lies is two, and then you come up with one called 3.5. What's the meaning behind 3.5? It, it, it took too long. <laughs> That's pretty much what it was, you know? So, you know, it was, you know, I think almost, you know, it was 84 was the release, the second record. And then 86 was the, the third record. It was like two years in the process. The recording took a long time. You know, we produced it ourselves. So, you know, when we were coming up with a title, I just figured, you know, Hey, let's just, you know, there you go. Throw 3. it 5. out there. Yeah. Yep. Well, we'll play a clip from that release. This is a song called Time, and we'll take a quick listen to that and then come back and chat. From a love that's going nowhere To the heart that feels the pain It's holding back the forces Of the destiny to stay
So that was a tune called Time. And Randy, can you share with me specifically, but certainly for the listeners, kind of what the the meaning behind the song, what was it written about? It's written about time, that, you know, how much it affects our lives and and yet it it has no, you know, it, it itself doesn't seem to be affected. It's, you know, it takes us from the cradle to the grave, you know, and then there's a little bit of, of a love song interwoven in there, you know, relationship. But it all has to do with bother time and that it ticks on and that it doesn't really care. You it, know, it's it, not thing for you, you know. No, it doesn't. And it becomes more clear you know, you know, I'm not an old guy and you're not an old guy, but we're not young guys anymore either. And time takes on a a whole new meaning and it seems to go much faster now than it ever did. I think about things that happened a while back. And I said, I mean, just like the death of John Denver, it seems like it was like four or five years ago and it's been over 20 years since we lost John Denver. Right. And it's like, where, where did the time go? Anyway, not to get yeah. all morbid on everybody, but in that song, Time, it sounds like you're playing in an open G tuning. Am I yeah. correct yeah. there? Yeah. And what percentage of Zebra songs are written in open tunings uh, as a guitarist? What percentage would you say are written in open? Well, the, the you know, there was the two, Who's Behind the Door in Time, and then you had one, two, three on the fourth zebra record i think maybe there was a fourth one, on one two three four there were four on zebra four that were written in the open g so you have six songs all together out of what 40 songs you know so there's whatever that percentage is you know six out of 40 yeah sure and do, would you say that the other is it safe to say that the other songs that were not in open G were, were they all just in standard tuning just in standard tuning yeah although I do a lot of uh, different tunings you know besides just the open G and uh, and I'm hoping I'll, I'll be using those uh, you know in future recordings and what what kind of open tunings uh, or tunings are you talking about there I, I use open open C, C. Okay. open C minor okay uh, a drop D um, I've got a, you know, I do an open G with a drop D on it, you know, which a lot of people just call an open G. But uh, uh, the the G that I've used for the Zebra songs that have already been recorded, I use two Gs, one on the the uh, the, e, the the low E string and one on the A string. So I've tuned up. They're they're kind of droning together, you know. Yeah. Well, I have to. I, I probably speak for the other 8 million and a half guitarists out there that have ever as a, as a beginner guitarist, you, you have these songs that you're inspired by and you're like, Oh, I've got to learn that song. Right. And Mm -hmm. as a, as a beginner guitarist, um, that, that was, that was probably one of the songs on my list and there's nothing more frustrating and that pisses you off more than to number one, try to learn a song like that. That's hard enough in and of itself but to try to play it in a standard tuning, not even knowing that you're not even tuned to the same thing that I was tuned in trying to learn the damn thing. So yeah. um, anyway, that's, well, that's why. That's how I, I, the way, way I started playing that open G was through kind of what you're talking about. I wanted to learn how to play the rain song, Led Zeppelin. Yeah. And 
So, you know, I realized pretty quickly that it was impossible to do it, you know, in a regular tuning. So I'm thinking maybe he's, you know, just overdubbed this whole thing, you know, on in two two different guitars. But I, the more I listened to it, I said, no, there's one guitar playing this. And then I said, okay, let's tune it differently. And that's what I did. You know, I retuned my guitar and came up with this open G and figured out how to play the rain song in open G. And it worked. It turns out years later when, when he find Jimmy Page finally comes out with the tunings that he used that he didn't even he used a different tuning, but it was an open G. Right. And his tuning makes it a lot easier to okay. play it too. Cause, Cause I'm stretching my fingers all right. over the place, but I was still able to do it. But you know, if I didn't do that, if I hadn't learned that, I probably would have never come up with the Who's Behind the Door or Time or any of the other songs I did in those tunes. It's amazing how much easier the song becomes when you actually tune the guitar correctly, right? For, for <laughs> yeah, what you're big, trying to play. Um, yeah. Why would you say you write in open tuning? Is it for variety? Is it because to you as a guitarist, it's easier to play? No, I, 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 it, it's a little more inspirational, I think. Uh, I think you can do a lot more with the guitar by itself when you're in an open tuning. You know, you, the, it, it just sounds bigger, and it gives you a different perspective. That's what it did for me. You know, I just like the sound of it, the, the, the atmosphere it provides, you know. And it's beautiful when you just when you're able to not fret a string on any guitar, much less a 12-string, and you just let the the string ring open there's there, there's a big sound that comes out of that especially a 12 string and i remember fumbling through youtube some way a long time ago and there was a guy playing um a pirate looks at 40 by jimmy buffett and uh -huh. every every time he would go back to what i later learned was g his whole hand was coming off the fretboard and he was just strumming and i'm like hold on a minute. I'm not, I'm not getting this right. <laughs> How in the hell is he playing the G and not even holding any string? But this was before I knew anything about open tuning. Right. right. So anyway, that's my open tuning story there. What bands were you on tour with supporting the 3.5 record? Do you remember? I'm sure you do. Well, we, we didn't tour with too many bands. We went out and wanted to headline uh, smaller venues, okay. which is kind of what we did. I, I, I'm sure we, we never, we didn't tour with anybody that. Okay, year. so you, you were know, you we, were headlining, but I know that you had acts that opened up for you when you were touring bands like um, Dream Theater come to mind, maybe Queensrÿche, Brian Adams, Sabotage, Sabotage yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Any others that I missed there that you can think of? I mean, I, there were tons of bands. I, I, not that any are coming to mind, you know. Okay. Those are the three main ones that I can remember that really took off. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, we did two shows with um, Queensryche. Uh, one of them was in Portland, Oregon, and one was in uh, Seattle. Okay, and that was up in their were, neck of the woods then. Cause yeah, Seattle but they were just starting off. They were just, yeah. you know. They hadn't, I don't know how much they'd played out, you know, so mm. they opened the show and, uh, and they did great. Yeah. They got them kicked off. You know, the, I think each theater was like three, three to 4,000 people, you know, and the places were packed. So it was good. I've was always been a big Queensryche. Yeah. I've always been a big Queensryche fan, you know, back from warning to empire. They had a, 
they had some great stuff out. Don't know that yep. much about Dream Theater, although I do know there's some phenomenal musicians in that band because I stumbled across them on YouTube, and I was watching a rig rundown with the keyboardist, and it's like that guy's on a different freaking planet than, you know. I mean, it's just like the equipment is just amazing. Like technology, well, it's so frustrating, yet it's so amazing all at the same time. And his rig is a hell of a rig. And for Dream Theater, you know, they have a big sound. It's a big production. So you could only sure. imagine. They're all incredible musicians. For sure. Now, back in sometime around 81, I may be jogging a part of your memory that you don't want to remember, but back in 81, you had some gear stolen. And, and of all places, it had to be Houston, of course, which is where I am, kind of puts a uh, pimple on, it's like the pimple on the ass or whatever, what, you know, whatever. <laughs> now, but anyway, you guys, Zebra had some gear stolen from Houston. And later on, there was a famous 80s band that staged a concert for you guys that helped replace all of that stolen gear. Can you share the story about where you were when the gear was stolen and who staged the benefit to try to replace some of the gear or all of the gear for you guys? Yeah, it was in 1981 and uh, we were at, uh, we were down in Houston uh, playing. I think it was a gig at Cardi's maybe that we were playing. We had hotel rooms at the La Quinta y'all were living large back then, right? In oh, La Quinta. Time, yeah. <laughs> the La Quinta. Yeah. They took the whole truck. They truck, they stole the whole truck. I wow. mean, they didn't take the equipment. It was just an empty parking lot. So, Unbelievable. Uh, yeah. And, um, so Twisted Sister, who was playing on the circuit up here in New York at the time, I mean, this is 1981. Nobody had records out at this point, you know, but, <sighs> uh, but Twisted Sister was a big band up here and, uh, the Good Rats, who I told you we had met uh, in New Orleans, they performed at the Benefit and also a band called Southern Cross. So all three of those bands and Zebra performed. It was on a Tuesday night, and, you know, we raised enough money at that one show to just walk into Sam Ash Music, you know, the next day <laughs> and uh, buy all our stage gear back. Wow. Well, thank goodness for, for friends in high places, right? You, you have to appreciate yeah. that. And no, that was that was awesome. Yeah, kind of a segue. We were talking about stolen gear. Let's talk about your gear. Is there a guitar of? And I know you you switch them out probably for for different sounds and different tunings, of course, for the for the non guitar listener out there. But is there a guitar of choice for live shows? Is there one that's just the guitar for you? You know, I over the years I've played different guitars. I I, I used to have a uh, one of the guitars that got stolen was a uh, C.C. Rich Mockingbird Supreme, awesome <clears throat> guitar, really sounded great. Never did get another one, but uh, that was that was one of my favorites. I bought a B.C. Rich Bitch after that that I played for years and years, and I used the Les Paul in the studio for a lot of the studio recording. And uh, now I'm playing Michael Kelly guitar that I designed. They're both acoustic and electric. Okay. And uh, those are the guitars I'm playing right now. And uh, they're, you know, they've got everything on them that I wanted, you know, so I fulfilled uh, everything I needed. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, so the, those are the guitars I'm playing. But backing up just a little bit, uh-huh. I think I had asked you in a text message sometime back, I saw Lita Ford playing 
a, a white BC rich that looked identical to yours. And I ask you, did she buy your guitar? And I think your response was no, she has one of her own. Is that yes. the guitar that you're referring to? The, the white one that was strung way back, uh, at the end of the guitar on the body. Yeah. 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 That's well, that's the double neck version of it. Okay. When, when the equipment was stolen, I had a double, a double neck BC rich stolen and I had the, uh, Mockingbird <clears throat> Supreme stolen. And so when we went to buy the new equipment, I'm going to buy a double neck and a single neck, you know, right. Yep. At the same at the same time. And they were going to have to order them from the factory. So, they said, what color do you want? Because we'll make them both identical. We'll, we'll, we'll do the paint job at the same time so that they have the exact same uh, coat. And uh, that's what they did, you know. So Interesting. You know, that was back in 1981. Okay. I got that guitar, you know. Yeah. And I think I've seen you play. I think I saw you play a live show, not not in person and, and personally, much like the Beatles conversation. It was on YouTube, of course. But uh-huh. I think you were playing in, um, where were you? Maybe Amityville. And I think you were playing a Martin at the time. Yep. Um, I've and got then, a couple of Martin acoustics. Yeah. And then, I, I funny story is I consulted with Martin and Taylor Guitars for a reseller here in Houston for a while. And there's always the argument, which is better, which is better. And I'm a, I'm a Taylor player. I'm, I'm partial to the Taylor. So. Uh-huh. Uh, the female artist that I was playing with at the time, she was a big Martin player, and I would always tell her, "Well, you know, when you when you graduate to a great guitar, you're gonna you're gonna go buy yourself a Taylor." So you know, it's that it's that <laughs> argument. Right. But yeah. uh, anyway, no Martins are great guitars, and I think if I remember also correctly, did you ever play a Guild? Were you a Guild player at one time yeah. as well? I had a Guild twelve string that I did to record uh, the first Zebra record. Okay. And, uh, and, and the third Zebra record, you know, and I used to play it live, a Guild 12 string. Yeah. And I still have that guitar, you know, but yeah. uh, it didn't have a pickup system in it. You know, we, yeah. I always, I was always using the, uh, those, remember those pickups you used to put in the hole, yeah. you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and it would just kind of sit in there with yeah. a spring. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the electronics in the acoustic guitar is what makes the difference for me, you know, as to whether I'm going to like the sound of it. I mean, having it sound good acoustically is good for recording, but 90% of what I do is playing live. So exactly. It's got to have a, it's got to, got to have a great pickup system on it. Yeah. Uh, so we, you, you spoke of Michael Kelly guitars a minute ago. I see a lot of your Facebook lives with the Michael Kelly. Um, mm-hmm. How did you hear about Michael Kelly guitars? Where, where did that come from? Of all the, well-known names out there, you know, like some that we just mentioned and, and you, you're, you're playing before you played it. I'd never heard of them. So tell the listeners a little bit how you came to find Michael Kelly guitars and the kind of the backstory there. Well, my good friend, Steve Pisani, who's a musician also, and I've known Steve, well, probably 35 years now. Uh, He's from here in New York. I met him when he was, he used to work at Alex music down in, uh, you know, on 48th street, in Manhattan. And he moved on to Sam Ash eventually and worked there for years and years and years. And he became the president of Michael Kelly guitars. And when he did, he called me, he said, listen, this guitar company, you know, and I'd never heard, well, I'd heard of Michael Kelly, but I didn't know a whole lot about him. He says, 
yeah, I'm the president of this company now, and we're going to redesign a bunch of these guitars, and I want you to come in. I want there to be a Randy Jackson model. I said, well, that's great, you know, because none of these other companies had ever done that with me. And uh, so I went and checked the guitars out, and I really liked the fact that the Michael Kelly didn't have a, a hole underneath the string. And it works great live because of that, you know, uh, less feedback. So it was natural. So we worked on the acoustic guitar for a couple of years, actually, getting the, the bridge right and everything and putting it at a p- price point that was affordable, you know. So when I guess I'd seen you play some Facebook live shows and I kept seeing this Michael Kelly logo up in the in the top left hand corner of the right. screen. And I'm like, who is so I so I started doing some digging and then I learned that there was a, a signature guitar and immediately I thought, well, being a guitar collector and a guitarist, you know, and, you know, being a Zebra fan for all these years, it's like, well, I, I think I owe it to myself to, to get a Randy Jackson signature model guitar. And it's not a mystery that I'll spend good money on good guitars. But I'm, I was thinking before I even looked at the website, I'm like, oh, boy. This is going to be a five thousand, seven thousand dollar job because I, I mean, it's the, it's a beautiful guitar, and I looked out there and I was like, wow, yeah, <laughs> I might can buy a couple of these here and and give one to my son that plays. So if if you guys are looking for a an amazing uh, sounding guitar and a beautiful guitar, make sure you check out Michael Kelly Guitars. And there's a signature, of course, they have different models, electric, acoustics, and whatnot. Um, but yours is the um, the 40-port 12, is that, 12, is right. that correct? And tell and, us tell us when, when a company makes a guitar for a player, for you to endorse, what goes into that? Can you walk us through that at kind of a high level? Like, I'm sure it's your specs and that kind of thing. But tell us, what's on the 40 port 12 that makes it Randy Jackson and not Randy Hulsey? Well, the electronics have to sound great. And we went through several different types of electronics on it. And we had a bunch of prototypes, you know, uh, of the guitar that I played for uh, – for a while out live and I would beat them up, you know, I mean, I would play in every week. I'm, I'm playing like three, four gigs, you know? And, uh, so it had to have great electronics sound good. It needs to stay in tune, which means it needs a bridge, you know, especially on a 12 string, it needs a bridge that's going to stay solid. So we went through like three different versions of the, of the bridge to, and, and did different things to reinforce the bridges to make them solid as a rock, but kept the lightness of the guitar. Finally, uh, the third time around, we got it. And uh, the guitar just, you don't need you know, the pins to put in. You don't use, put pins into the guitar to put the strings in. You just hook them around. It's like a, one less thing to do. So stringing the guitar is pretty easy. I mean, I, I just restrung the 12 string today, and it took me uh, a little less than 20 minutes wow. you know, for 12 strings, which, is, you know, for me, that was pretty quick. And if anybody's ever tried to restring a twelve string, it's kind of an ass beaten to a certain degree, right? <laughs> yeah. It takes it can it, be. Yeah. Some, somebody asked me one time, "Man, how long does it take you to to string that that twelve string that twelve string Taylor that you have?" I said, 
twice as long as the six string. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and sometimes it's twice as long as that when you end up putting the strings in the wrong place. <laughs> exactly. Well, what what does that mean? What does that mean when you have a a pinless bridge? Like most people that are into guitars know that for acoustics you have to push the pin in to right. to well, see. I can show it. you. I have the guitar. Yeah. I have the guitar right here do it and we'll talk talk through it because of course the listeners won't be able to see this video i'll keep the video secure but uh this is you know if, yeah. you're, if you're ever looking at a, an acoustic guitar it has bridge pins down at the you know in the middle of the the top that hold the right strings here. in right yeah but the strings go into a little hole here and then you slide it this way and pull it up and it stays there it's almost you know, auto it's like locking auto locking basically right yeah 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 it's kind of like uh you know uh, on a on a door uh you know the keychain i mean the chain on a door you know you Correct. put it in the big hole and then you slide, slide it over it, yes. to where it can't come out right yeah and, and that's how this this works yeah and i think that for the listeners out there there's there there can be some if you're if you're not proficient with stringing a guitar the bridge pins can be a hassle sometimes because they don't want to stay in and they keep popping out while you're trying to put tension on the strings. But that's that's another conversation in and of itself. We won't get into guitar tech talk here, but uh, I thanks for sharing that. That's I think that might be the first one that I've seen with, with no bridge pins in it. And, and I'm sure there may be others out there, but I'm just not aware of them. Well, I know, you know, there's electric guitars, certainly. There's sure. a lot of them that you string yeah. through the back of yes. the guitar, you know. Now, you don't do that with this. You know, the back is just the back. Yes. You know, so you're stringing this thing through the front. Right. And then the neck, the tuning pe- the tuning keys are, are great. They stay. They're rock solid. And the nut is awesome. You know, there's no notching or, right. you know, going out of tune and flipping, you know. So, I mean, for me, the worst thing is being out of tune. Yeah. And, uh, and so the thing's got to stay in tune, and especially on a 12-string, and and this thing, I beat the crap out of it. And unless the weather's really changing a whole lot, it stays in tune. Yeah. You know? Well, you deal with a lot of humidity here in, in Houston, and that can be a challenge keeping them in tune. And there, I, I think there was another old joke about the 12-string as well, that uh, a, a person playing a 12-string spends half of his life tuning the guitar, and then the other half of his life he plays it out of tune so it's like <laughs> unless you've made a living play in the 12 string like you have i mean I, I think you're synonymous with with the 12 string um you, you probably play between you and my musical mentor the guy that made me ever pick up a guitar he was a phenomenal flat picker and uh he was a solo artist and he, everything he all of his shows were played with 12 string and he really? did everything, you know, he's an old Navy guy, probably, he's probably in his mid sixties now, but, you know, played all the old Neil Young stuff and just made everything sound beautiful on a, on a 12 string guitar. It has so much more sound. And especially when you're a solo artist, you, you know, a little more sound doesn't hurt. So, yep. so you're playing a ton of Facebook live shows now. What are your mm-hmm. thoughts on Facebook live for, for me. So I started doing Facebook live when Facebook live kind of first came out. This is way before COVID. And for me, 
for me, I had been a musician back in the eighties playing in bands. And then I just went on hiatus. Like I didn't play anywhere. And somewhere around 2015, 2016, I said, you know what? I'm going to buy me a good acoustic guitar and start learning some tunes and, and go back out and hit some little wineries or, you know, start doing that kind of thing. And the way I cut my teeth kind of getting my music out there was I jumped on this Facebook live thing. And I'm not saying that I was the first one to be on it by any stretch, but I was doing it like before COVID when everybody started using that as a, as a tool to not only to get their stuff out there, but to make money uh, to supplement income for the musicians that weren't able to go out and tour, right? What a wonderful tool it it was and is, but it's weird. You know, I'm sure you think the same thing. It's just weird playing to a cell phone sitting in front of you and there's no interaction from anybody. It's like you're playing to a cinder block wall. And I just wanted to get your, your feelings on that. It, you know, it's, it's tough to play all these songs and just not get a vibe back from something or somebody. What are your thoughts on the Facebook Live? Well, I wanted it to be, you know, I started doing it after after COVID. You know, I, I was actually in New Orleans doing my last live show down there uh, last March. And that's when they closed Louisiana. You know, Louisiana kind of shut down while I was there. And uh, I decided just to stay down there for a while until we figured out how I was going to get back to New York, you know. And, uh, and it was at that point that, it, you know, the Facebook Live looked like, that was the thing to do. So, but I wanted it to be more interactive. So I got myself a big screen, you know, like right now I'm seeing you on a television screen. I'm looking straight at you and I have the comments coming down at me okay. while I'm doing the show. Gotcha. And I have them lined up to where I don't look like I'm looking off on the side or anything. I'm looking straight ahead so I can see the comments while they're coming in. And you know, my wife says, you should shut your eyes and look like you're more into it, you know, but I'll miss people asking, sure. you know, for certain songs or, you know, asking questions and I'm able to interact with them, yes. you know, this way, you know, so there is more interaction, but, you know, I had to, you know, buy, I mean, it's a, it's a huge television screen I've got in front of me that took to my computer and, you know, I, I found out the hard way you need a really powerful computer to, in order to really yeah. do it right. Yeah. And uh, you can't just do it with a laptop. You know, it just doesn't yeah. work. I'm and good internet speed and the whole, the whole nine yards. Speed. So, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's, it, uh, the Facebook live thing was a blessing for sure. And it, and it certainly was there at the right time, especially like I said, when, when bands and artists were not able to get out and support themselves and the bars and the venues and whatnot. So it, you know, it gave them a little bit of supplemental income there. The help to keep your chops up, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I did never get that elaborate with the whole production kind of you're, you're playing live just about every day. I was more of like, you know, maybe I'll jump on and play 10 songs live and then get off. You know, that right. was kind of the thing. And, you know, I'm not making a living playing music like you are. So it was kind of a, a passe thing. But I, I forgot what I was going to tell you about that. But, yeah, I didn't I didn't set a, it, a monitor it, up it, in front. I mean, one of the things that I did do was I used a device that would allow me to go straight from the phone into my mixer, which would cut out all the noise and the in the room right. and you would just get a straight mix to the, 
to the phone, which would, you know, your video is great, but then you hear the dogs barking in the background or whatever. And right, with, with right, that device, right. you were able to take that out. So, well, yeah, that's, that's what I had to do. I wanted to make sure that it was uh, just a direct feed and all my effects. I, I run them with my feed and it, it, it needed to be right. For but, sure. And I got the green screens to put, you know, like what you see behind me, you yes. know, make it a little bit interesting because I'm just sitting there playing the guitar, you know. <laughs> For uh, sure. And uh, and learning some new songs along the way. But, you know, no matter how much you practice the song, it's always different when you play it in front of people, whether they're actually sitting in front of you or you're doing it on Facebook Live because, you agree. know, they're there. And, I agree. Yeah. From a, you know, we're still kind of on the, talking about guitars and the streaming of Facebook Live, from a pedal effects conversation, what's your go-to board? Do you have a bunch of effects on a board, or is it a, a pod of some kind that, that you play through? I use a HD, I think it's the HD X 500, the Line 6. HD 500? Okay, yeah, that's yep. what I have at home in the studio. So I didn't know what well, you were playing through. that's what I'm using. Okay. I, use, I use the HD 500, and I put my vocal through it. And I put the guitar through it. Okay. And I split the two paths, and they come out separately, uh, left and right. And so now they're discrete, and then I can bring them into uh, the computer, and I, I'm using Digital Performer in there to just set up a mix. And I can add a little, I might add a little bit of reverb in Digital Performer, but that's it. But all the echoes and the delays all come from the. Uh, the pod hd 500 interesting yeah what is on the horizon for zebra post pandemic post pandemic yeah whenever that when is, is right when is when I, is post yeah that's that's a great question <laughs> but you know things are starting i guess i should say things are starting to i speak for houston here you know we've we've basically gone back we're 100 percent opened up of course people are still wearing their mask and and things of that nature but things are trying to get back to some normalcy but rephrasing the question I guess I should say are there shows that are starting to be booked at venues for Zebra for the symphony that you do talk to me a little bit about what's coming up for you guys yeah we would love to do the symphony show uh, again sometime but there's nothing booked for that right now we are doing two shows near St. Petersburg, Florida. It's in Largo. It's the Largo Cultural Center in Largo, Florida, and that's on June 5th and 6th. Okay. And uh, it's a, a theater that we've played, you know, many times before, but they've taken all the theater seating out, and it's just tables now. So okay, that's the difference. We'll probably be doing a show here on Long Island at the, uh, at the end of the year, November or December. And... Um, you know, I'm sure between now and June, we'll have something booked down south in New Orleans and some other places too. But I, you know, the next, I think 60 days are going to really tell a lot because there's a lot of places that are reopening Yeah. and we got to kind of see how, it, you know, how it's going to go. Yeah. I mean, I just read a, an article about Brazil. Mm. They're in a crisis right now. They got 6,000 people a day dying down there. Jeez. And, uh, you know, they just didn't handle it well at all. Yeah. And it's like getting your feet wet. It's like, you know, is the water, is it still too cold to go in the pool? Exactly. You know, you dip your toe in. All right. So, yeah, you know, it, I know. You have to play it by ear for sure, I think. Yeah. 
everybody's got their own uh, feelings about how safe they feel. And, you know, you, you, you've got to feel comfortable. And uh, some of us were comfortable from the beginning and some of us were a little too comfortable and maybe some of us were a little too overprotected too, but everybody's different. And that's just kind of the way it is. Yeah. Well, and my, my wife, Terry has been through the first round of vaccination and I think she's due to get the, the next one next Friday. I haven't had any. My daughter mm-hmm. is a nurse actually in the COVID unit for a major hospital system here in, in Houston. And she actually had COVID, I guess, last year sometime. It was a, a mild case, thank goodness. But yeah, you're right. I mean, there's the overprotected, the, the people that don't care, the people that care too much. You never know what you're going to get with people. I think it's just use common sense, you know, protect yourself, protect other people without being a a knucklehead extremist, kind of like the conversation we were having with hunting, you know, I'm not going out picketing anywhere or anything like that, but it's not my belief either, but I I believe everybody that has, you know, everybody has their own beliefs. Where can the listeners find you on social media and on the internet in general? Well, I've got a bunch of different places and I'm going to tell you where they are. They can go to um, the zebra website, which is www.thedoor, T-H-E-D-O-O-R.com. That's the Zebra website. You can go to Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Randy Jackson Zebra, all one word, Randy Jackson Zebra. And then there's another Facebook page I have that's Randy slash Jackson slash of slash Zebra, Randy Jackson of Zebra. So there's two Facebook places. On Twitter, I'm Randy Zebra. On YouTube, I'm Randy Jackson of Zebra. You can find me Randy Jackson of Zebra on YouTube. Yeah, and and make sure, thanks for sharing that with the listeners, and you, you guys would be in for a treat if you jump out specifically on the Facebook web page. I don't know if you do the live shows at the same time, Every day, but it seems like most of them are mid-afternoon, like 2.30 Houston time or some sometime around 4, there. 4 p.m. Eastern time. So, so, so be, 3. You're that, on the, Central time. Yep, Central. 3 yep. p.m., yeah. So 3 p.m. and listen to some great stuff from Zebra, great cover stuff. Uh, Randy has, I think, Venmo and PayPal set up to do some online tipping. So yeah. uh, any of the listeners out there gracious enough to support fellow musicians certainly do that. Randy, I'll hit you with some um, some fun quick-fire questions here. You know, just kind of blurt out a, a single answer. If you want to expound upon, you know, or elaborate on, on one of them, that's fine too. But we'll we'll go through those, and then we'll we'll wrap up. So how about uh, Beatles or the Stones? Uh, that's going to be a, a dead giveaway. We talked about that earlier, right? Yeah, it's got to be the Beatles. I mean, I love the Stones too, but the Beatles – yeah, it's got to be the Beatles. Well, the Stones certainly played a lot in Open G, too, and I'm sure you you know Keith Richards yeah. was a big Open Open, open G. G player, right? Uh, Absolutely. How, how about uh, Van Halen or Hendrix? Uh, I, you know, they, they both, both of them did something unique <clears throat> with the guitar. Yeah. And so I couldn't, I can't really compare them. They're both, like, right at the top. Yeah, even from an inspirational like certainly it's ap- apples and oranges, like you said, but I didn't know if one maybe inspired you more as a guitar player over over the other one. Well, I mean, 
you know, when I was growing up, it was Hendrix. And by the time I heard Van Halen, Zebra was already playing. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't really listening to Van Halen to learn Van Halen, you know, but you knew that he had done something completely new, innovative, you know, which was very rare. So I, I couldn't really pick one. And then the styles are different. Oh, sure. They're very different. Yeah. So uh, I can't, I, I can't, I can't give you a fair, an answer on that. Fair enough. And there's no right or wrong answers here. Just kind of, kind of something to, to ponder, I guess. How about yeah. a summer or winter? Are you a summer or winter guy? Summer. What about TV or radio? TV. Acoustic or electric? Acoustic. Rock or country? I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> I, d- I didn't say that. As long as you said it, that's what whatever, man. <laughs> How about rock or country? Rock. Anything country you like? Um, not not really not really specifically, but or do you listen to country at all? I guess I should rephrase that question a little bit. I don't really listen to it. I mean, I think what I like about country music more than anything else is, is sometimes the lyrics. I like. Some of the country, there's some they're pretty crafty. slick lyrics. Yeah, they're crafty. Country, yeah, crafty yeah. lyrics in the in the country music stuff. But there's no, you know, for me when I was growing up with rock, I mean, you, you know, you're you're listening to Hendrix one minute, and all of a sudden you're listening to Yes the yeah, next minute, yeah. you know. And there's not, there's just not that diversity in country music. I mean, no, there's it's pretty defined, you know. Yes. Even though it may rock a little more now than it used to back in the day. Yeah, I agree. But, uh, it's not, it doesn't have the variety that, uh, that rock had for me. Well, I was never a country guy. Like, I mean, of course I knew Willie Nelson songs and stuff like that. And, but I was never a connoisseur or, a, or an intaker of country music. But when I became a solo artist here and started doing a lot of covers that, you know, you try to play everybody's favorite. I, I figured out real quick, you're going to have to be a little more diverse than playing everything by the Eagles and the rock stuff because there are some people that love classic country, red dirt country. Yeah. So so I'm, I forced myself out of my whatever uh, vortex that I was in with rock and roll and forced mm-hmm. myself to learn a lot of the more popular country stuff and then started listening to the Americana genre. And there's a lot of good writers out there. It's a lot of good stuff. That's kind of where my love, you know, at the end of the day, I'm always a rock guy. But, you know, you, you have to have a little diversity unless you're a band like Zebra and people go to, for instance, the Warehouse Live or the Warehouse here in Houston where I saw you last. And they're there to hear Zebra songs. They didn't come for Zebra to, to cover country tunes, right? So. You don't no, have to worry no. about that as zebra, right? Whereas a solo artist like myself, I have to. Yeah, I mean, look, you're trying to, you know, it's 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 my situation is certainly different than uh, the, the the person that uh, doesn't have any, you know, original material that people are familiar familiar with enough to to get away with playing it. But you know, even so, as you know, as as many zebra fans as there are out there, I do like to do covers, but mm-hmm. there's enough you know, of the classic rock stuff for me to do that, uh, I can pretty much do what I like to do, you know, and, sure. uh, I try to stick to that. You know, I do do 
Folsom Prison Blues, though, somebody asked. Do you? There's okay. always somebody that says, you know, any country at all? Yeah, I'll do a little Johnny Cash for you. you know? <laughs> that's so the, I will do that. That's the epitome of, of country. Everybody's got to do Folsom Prison Blues. It's almost almost like Free Bird and Stairway to Heaven. Like, you, you got to <laughs> do them. They're the staple songs. Or, you well, know, yeah. I do do it. What about, so uh, that that song in particular, what key do you play that in can you remember off the i top play of it in c c okay i'm a g i play it in g that's kind of my my wheelhouse there the key of g okay so i didn't know i didn't know what key that you were playing it in but moving along new york or louisiana again apples and oranges i'm sure not really uh you know that one thing about new york when we got up here i mean we could we, we live in long island you know we didn't come to manhattan I was really surprised at how similar the people were in Long Island compared to New Orleans. When we got to Manhattan, I did definitely, you know, when we went into New York City, I definitely noticed the difference in the difference in the attitude of the people. But I think it just has to come with the amount of people in Manhattan and just that it's everybody's like on ten all the time in Manhattan, you know. Yep. But uh, Long Island is suburbia, and big similarity in the people. So, I mean, there's, uh, the thing that is different is the topography here and down in South, you know, you've got uh, the ocean, the beaches and stuff here, which is great during the summertime. New Orleans has the seafood, the, uh, the bayou. It's got its own atmosphere. I mean, New Orleans is music. Yeah. uh, Jazz. Yeah. And I have friends in both places. So, you know, I, I guess if I had to pick one, I'd pick Louisiana simply because I hate the winters in New York. <laughs> I can't stand it. They say the winters are fine if you don't have to shovel snow. If you go and visit and then leave, that's the best winter to be in. And I was, yeah. uh, for work, I was I went up to, I have a customer up in the Bakken, which is Minot, North Dakota, and I purposely called a charter flight for the company. They have a private flight that flies from Houston straight into Minot. And I purposely booked a January trip to, to Minot just to say that I experienced the winter for four days. And when I was there, it was negative 41 degrees. And even the polar bears were pissed off living there. It was that, (laughs) it was that cold. And I, the crazy thing is the city, the town, you know, mine not small, but the town, people were working, people were driving around. If that was Houston and it was negative 41, much like, like what you remember from, probably from New Orleans, when it gets to 20 degrees, the city shuts down because yeah. we don't have the infrastructure to de-ice the streets and snow plow. And do, not that we get much snow, but people lose their minds here in Houston, as you probably yeah. know. But up there, it's like it's another day at negative forty-one degrees. So it, it was it was it windy at all? It wasn't windy, <laughs> but it it was it was snowing, and it was weird because you're sitting in the hotel room and you keep hearing the emergency uh, notification go off, and uh-huh. you know here in Houston usually that means it's a uh, you know somebody's missing uh, an, an Amber Alert, right? And but the TV was screaming warnings that say temperatures are so extreme don't expose your skin for any longer than five minutes because hypothermia will set in at those temperatures so that was weird you know a guy living in houston going and getting 
hey, you're going to freeze to death if you go outside for five minutes. Yeah. It was really, it was weird, but I, I lived through it. I experienced it, but the whole getting up at five o'clock in the morning just to shovel snow to drive to work. No, no, thanks. Yeah. I'll, let, I'll let you guys have that, that have to deal with the <laughs> snow every day. Thanks. Early, early bird or night owl? Lately early. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I used to be a night owl and, uh, you know, since the COVID thing, I've, I've been getting up early in the morning and, uh, and going to sleep early. Yeah. I think right. that I'm like that too. And my, my good buddy, uh, Paul Hartwell, who I interviewed first on my show, he's the same way. The, the guy's up at four in the morning, five in the morning. And I think because I work for a living in corporate America, I mean, I I'm trained to be like that. So I don't really live the musician hours where you're up till four in the morning or five and then you right. sleep till lunchtime. So I, I feel more productive in the mornings myself. Favorite place to play? Where, thinking about all of the places that you've played over time, is there one that sticks out in your mind that was, man, I just love that place and maybe you've played it many times? Does one stick out? I know we had a lot of great gigs at Old Man Rivers in uh avondale and avondale yeah right outside of new orleans and um and up in here in new york there was a place we used to play called speaks in island park our manager one of our managers owned speaks it was just a great club it was a rock it was a rock club with a lot of history so you know i i would say those two places you know we had i had probably some of the best times yeah Do you remember playing Podnas in St. Martinville? Yeah. 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 Sure. Okay. Flicks. Yeah. It was Flicks at one time, okay. right? Yeah. That was yeah. a great, that was always a great gig. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. And what about Lafayette? Do you remember any shows that you played over in Lafayette? Did you guys ever play at a place called the Keg or anything like that? Uh, I think we might have played the Keg once, but uh, Grant Street was the place we played yeah. a lot in Lafayette, you yeah. know? But I think my favorite Lafayette gig has to be the uh the gig we did with the acadiana symphony okay at the uh at the auditorium there you know was that the blackham coliseum or something different or do you remember i should remember i Not, should know this it's, right it's probably in material i mean I, I was just curious if it if that sounded familiar it, was in, it wasn't too long ago it was not, okay uh, 2019 i got you i should know but yeah it okay. was the, it was like a just like a 2500 seat theater okay. you know yep Favorite song to play live by Zebra? Hmm. <laughs> this is where we edit the gaps out, right? <laughs> yeah, so it just comes right up. My favorite song to play live by Zebra. Um, uh, let's say it's the La La song. Yeah. You okay. know, we always do the drum solo in it. I get to take a break. <laughs> <laughs> Make Guy work get a little watch, bit. <laughs> yeah, get Make to watch Guy keep... play the drums a little bit from the side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Just make everybody else work while you're on break. Uh, what about uh, what about favorite song to play live by the Beatles? I'm going to say Day in the Life. Yeah. I thought I that that's that what you're going to say. That's a great song. What about by – so I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, the, the symphonies that you do and whatnot. So I'm, I'm thinking about those bands and songs that you may cover. What about by Led Zeppelin? Um, since I've Been Loving You. Okay. What about a second one? Yeah. You got a second one? one Stairway that, to Heaven. Yeah? Yeah. I, I was thinking maybe you would say the Rain song, but... Um, well, I love the Rain song, yeah. And that's definitely up at... That, that probably is number three, you yeah. know? But um, 
far as the symphony shows go, okay, uh, you know, when you mentioned the symphony, I, the sense of in loving you get just gives me a you know a chance to really stretch, and because I'm not playing guitar, I can just totally focus on singing, and so uh, I, I enjoy that you know a lot when I'm doing the symphony shows. Do you find, and this is kind of off the quick fire questions, totally off the subject, but do you find that you're a more powerful or maybe a better singer or whatever word you want to use when you don't have the guitar in your hands? I think there's got to be, I've got to be a little better, yeah. you know? I mean, maybe yeah. people wouldn't notice it, you know, but yeah. you I, would I notice. think, you know, with me, yeah, being totally focused on one thing as opposed to two things. Absolutely. It's just, I, I just think that, you know, it's just natural that it's, you know, one's going to be better than the other. Well, and I think that people would think that there's a proficiency there. Like I was a hockey player for many years and there's a prerequisite to play in hockey and that's called skating. So when you're, when you're moving the puck and you're thinking of all these things, you can't think of what your feet are doing. That's a second nature to you. Much like you as a vocalist and a guitarist, if you kind of use an analogy, they think that, well, Randy Jackson's a phenomenal guitar player. Surely he doesn't even think about playing the guitar. Well, in fact, you do. I mean, you've done it so many times, but they wouldn't think that it would be a hindrance to you at all, right? But you do have to put some thought into it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I was playing yesterday, and I I was playing uh, Help by the Beatles, and I've played the song thousands of times, you know, and I couldn't for the life of me remember the riff. You know, I, and I, I just stopped. I just stopped because I, I, I could, I could have faked my way through it. Sure. But, you know, these are very informal gigs on online Absolutely. and I just stopped and I was just like, man, you know, here I am. You know, if I only had to sing it, <laughs> it would have been fine, you know, but you're playing that guitar and you look, you know, you have brain farts. So, exactly. You know, the one, the one thing that I really like to have, just like you said, and, and on the back of your hand is the lyrics, you know, to have to try to remember what the lyrics are. You're not performing anymore. The, the, uh, the song's controlling you at that point. The more you've got that just, like you said, that you don't even have to think about. If you're in that zone, then that's good, you know? But when you start to forget <laughs> little things like lyrics, yeah, it's no good. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. That brings up an interesting point, and I kind of wanted to get your take on it because I have kind of mixed emotions about this. So there is a program on the iPad that I use, and I think a lot of players, especially solo artists, have gravitated to, and it's called OnSong, O-N-S-O-N-G. Are you familiar with mm-hmm. it? Have you have you heard of it before? No. I mean, I know a lot of people use their iPads. For yeah. So, lyrics, so it's, you know? it's basically, if you put in a lot of effort, you basically go out, you pull the music off, you know, ultimateguitar.com, bring the chords down, the lyrics, if you're OCD like I am, you spend a lot of time perfecting everything, and then it has a teleprompter feature mm-hmm. that you can time the song. So as you're playing right. live, if you can't remember lyrics, you never get stuck. You never forget the lyrics. You never forget well, the chords, that's, right? That's a good thing. And, and it's a good thing, but I also feel like it's a hindrance, too. Like, you become way too reliant on that. I know when you go out and play zebra songs, you don't have music in front of you because you played them 75,000 times. Whereas 
when you're a solo artist, you're asked to play uh, so many different things. And sometimes you get requests. And so I didn't know if, if you felt like something like that would be a hindrance in a Facebook live show where you never had a hiccup like you did in help. And there was always right. that aid there. But it becomes a crutch, too, I believe, where you where you rely on that. And it's yeah. you, you don't exercise your brain to memorize the songs like we did. 10 years ago or 15 years ago before all these wonderful tools came out that, that are aids to us as musicians. I mean, I do, you know, if, if there's a song that uh, somebody's asked for that, you know, I haven't played before and I don't think I'll be playing it much, you know, that it'll maybe be a one-off or a couple of times, you know, I'll get a lyric and put it in front of me and, and read it and just get through the song. But yeah, I could see a situation where it's, that if you were doing that all the time and you had it where all you had to do was just hit a button or just say a certain word and the lyrics are going to come up and then it's going to start and scroll for you, that you'd become dependent on that. Yes. And, you know, it's just one more thing you've got to do now. Yeah. You know, now you're doing three things. You know, Correct. you're singing, you're reading, and you're playing. Oh, and, and don't forget the know, pedals. You know, you got to work the pedal. So that's you gotta actually four things. you got to work the pedal, yeah. got to work the well, pedal. Well, I, I felt kind of bad about the whole on song thing until I recently, well, it wasn't recently. It was probably a couple of years ago. I went and saw cheap trick and, uh, Aerosmith here at Toyota center in Houston. And I got to looking and I'm like, wait a minute, Steven Tyler has teleprompters on stage oh, yeah. with his lyrics. And I'm like, okay, now I don't feel bad at all. This guy's been, he wrote these songs. They're all mega hits. And he's been singing them for, for but, 40 years. But right. he's not reading it. You know, he's using yes. it as a, if he forgets. An aid. He will right. go and, and look at it. Right. But he's not looking at that thing. Sure. You know, while sure. He, you know, it's there. You know, somebody, you know, I was talking to somebody else. They said, uh, you know, you can forget the simplest thing in the middle of any kind of show, whether yes. it's a big audience or a small audience. He says, how would you like to be Leonard Skinner and just forget the opening line to Freebird, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, you don't want that, you know? No. So it's up there, yeah. you know? If, you, if you're right there you and you're it. one feet away, yeah, yeah, you want it there. And that's kind of the way I treat the on song. I don't read it. I glance at it from time to time Good. just to make sure that I'm staying on track. So it's it's a yeah. cheat more than it is a, a total crutch. But anyway, back to how about how about Pink Floyd? Is there a song by Pink Floyd that sticks out symphony symphony wise that uh, it might be your favorite to play live? Us and them. Okay, that's a great one. What yeah, about what about? I just really love that song. Yeah. What about the Doors? Um, five to one. It's just so raw. Yeah. Just I love so, that. That's a great it's, song. It's yeah. It's just it's everything that Jim Morrison was all about, you know, and and. And more, it was like, he just, it's just so outrageous. You know, yep. it's crazy. Yep. Formal training or play by ear? A little bit of formal training, but mainly by ear. A lot of hours in front of the, uh, the record player, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, back in the day before, you know, you had tablature and all these great tools on the internet you literally put in a, a cassette tape or a CD and hit the rewind button, play, rewind, play, rewind, play, until it was instilled in your brain 
and you could hum it and then you go and you try to find it. Right. That's how yeah. we learned songs back, you know, back in the dinosaur yeah. days. I it was, guess. it was quicker with the needle. I can tell you that because yeah. you could just flip that needle. Yeah. I could almost put it right on the point that I wanted to and uh, start, you know, getting good at it. Yep. Number one influential musician or band, like who did it for you? Like I know the Beatles were big, but what about just an individual musician? Was there one that was it for you? I mean, I guess I'd I'd have to say uh, Jimmy Page if I had to pick one. Then you get, you know, you go back to the Beatles, you know, and you and, and you listen to all those songs. You know, there's so many great freaking songs that they wrote, you yes. know, that uh, is it the guitar playing or is it the singing or is it the melodies? And uh, so, I, you know, I I can just tell you that, you know, I, I guess between the Beatles and the and Zeppelin and the Moody Blues. And yes, you know, those were my biggest you know, inspirations, let's yeah. say, you know. Would you say that Rush was an inspiration? Because you guys have always been kind of synonymous with, you know, may, and maybe it's synonymous because you're a three-piece band. You know, Rush was a three-piece band. But I know that you guys have probably, or you have done covers by by Rush in the, the past, right? I mean, would you yeah. call them an influential band to you, or were they just kind of more of, oh, they were a great band, one of my favorites, but I wouldn't say they're influential. Well, when we got, we didn't get together, we got together as a three piece band without even, I didn't even know about Rush when we were, you know, I wouldn't say that they were a big influence on the music. We started learning Rush songs because the crowd, the, you know, our audience was asking us for Rush and, uh, and they have great music and everything, but you know, that was past the point when I was a teenager, you know, I was already playing music myself. And wasn't real. I, I mean, we I, we would learn it for uh, for our fans and stuff. Yeah. And uh, I've sense. seen Rush live probably like five six times. Really great band. Oh yeah. But no, they weren't one of the ones <clears throat> that. Uh, I think Rush probably influenced Dream Theater more than the, a lot more than you know people give them credit for. You know, they were they were big Rush fans. Yeah, and I know you you're heavily influenced Led Zeppelin guy have you have you heard of the band out of uh i think they're some kids out of detroit area detroit michigan uh called greta van fleet have you heard of them oh, sure yeah yeah, yeah. great that guy jason band. plum that i told you about yeah jason the guy that yeah. was the a and guy that yeah. signed us he he signed them oh did he his label. Yeah. <laughs> wow interesting that he'd sign you guys and yeah yeah i i enjoyed yeah. their music you know i think yeah they're all, great yeah for sure. And then the last one that I have for you is what advice would you give a young up and coming guitar player specifically? Because I have a lot of people that come to me and I'm, I'm a mediocre guitarist at best and I play well enough and sing well enough to, to play live shows. And so I have somewhat of a gift, but I think a lot of people will come to me and say, Hey, help me find a guitar. And then next thing you know, they've quit. Like, what would you tell a a beginning guitarist that really wanted to play? Is there any advice that you would give them? They got to practice, you know, and they got to practice on their own. And the lessons that they take are just to help them a little bit along the way. But you got to practice. You got to practice every day. 
And if you really want to be serious about it, you know, and make it, try to make a living at it, you need to practice like six, seven hours a day. Yeah. You know, you've got, you've got to <clears throat> live with your guitar and learn, you know, I, I would say learn how to read, you know, I wish that's one thing I wish I would have done early on was learn how to sight read guitar because mm-hmm. there's a lot of opportunities for studio work, yes. you know, for people that can read. But, you know, it's really the hours you put into it. It's not the years. It's the hours. You can learn to be a great guitar player in, in months yeah. if you practice hard enough. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I always tell the the new players that you, you have to at least get by the callousing of the fingers part. If you don't ever get to that point or past that point, you're never going to play because a lot of people feel that. They don't like yeah. it the blisters, the bleeding, and they're, I'm done. I'm checking out. It's not worth it. So yeah, I mean, after my third surgery, I almost quit. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and it, and, and it's so funny that there, I'm on a, um, a Taylor guitars players group on Facebook. And it's so funny that somebody will post at, at, at the oddest time, they'll post a picture of their calluses and uh-huh. and then about 10 minutes later you look at that thread and there's like 50 people that have posted pictures of their calluses on yeah. there and everybody is so proud of those calluses and my dad always tells me man why don't you get a emery board and file those things down a little bit and i'm like oh dad it took like 30 years to get these things you don't want yeah. to file them down that's what do the you last mean? thing yeah, no what do you what are you saying yeah so yeah that's i mean f- it it's definitely, you know, in the beginning, it's, it's tough. And it's really frustrating when, you, we, when you've got all this pain and you still can't play. Exactly. You know? but, yeah, but the calluses do come and you just have to keep, keep at it and, and give it some time, you know. Yep. Uh, don't kill yourself over it, but uh, don't give up because of that. Because once you get the calluses going, you never feel, never feel it again until we, unless you stop playing for a long that's, time. That's you know? exactly right. So great advice by, by Randy Jackson here. Randy, thanks so much for joining me. And, I, you know, I want to wish you and Zebra continued success. I'm going to look at picking up a, the Forte Port 12. And if okay, and when Kelly, yeah. you're, yep, if and when you're ever in Houston, maybe I can find you and you can sign this and I can put it in my studio. So, uh, no problem. If you would be so kind as to do that, you know, again, I wish you guys all the success when things open back up and get going. I ask the listeners to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. Make sure that you check out Randy's social media sites, follow him, check out the Facebook lives, certainly. Be generous with uh, tipping if you guys can afford to do so. That's always very much appreciated. And as always, you can find the show on Facebook at Backstage Pass Radio Podcast, on Instagram at Backstage Pass Radio, on Twitter at Backstage Pass PC, and the website is BackstagePassRadio.com. Thank you again for joining me, Randy, and you guys make sure that you take care of yourselves and each other, and I'll see you guys right back here on the next episode of Backstage Pass Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Backstage Pass Radio. Make sure to follow Randy on Facebook and Instagram at Randy Halsey Music and on Twitter at R Halsey Music. 
Also make sure to like, subscribe, and turn on alerts for upcoming podcasts. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to share the link with a friend and tell them Backstage Pass Radio is the best show on the web for everything music. We'll see you next time right here on Backstage Pass Radio.